0: My name is julene jackson i'm the national vice president for moms for america vivian is our behind the scenes woman from san antonio texas she's the manager of the cottage meetings and mom links this is my husband who uh teaches class our healing of america seminar on thursday night together it's kind of fun to have a husband and wife teach uh you know there's kind of a, a different vibe and spirit when the mom's uh, are are all together on Wednesday, and then a man always kind of introduces a, a a different tone, which is mm-hmm. it's kind of fun. You kind of keep me on my toes because sometimes you kick me under the table, and mm-hmm. you know you want me to move in a different direction. But anyways, welcome so much. We are on the eleventh class of our sixteen-week series of Healing of America. We are kind of coming into the home stretch. We're on seminar three section three, you know, these seminars are so wonderful and enlightening and particularly helpful right now, as I know so many of us are worried about the direction of our country and our communities and even our children. And so I'm so glad that we can come together. We've been gone for a, a month now, we've been on the road. So we have taught in, I, I, I wrote it down, Ohio uh, four weeks ago and Utah and um, Iowa. Last week we were at Bethany Beach, but we are home. It feels so good to be home. I wish we could just meet you all and have you all over for dinner so we could just talk a mile a minute about what we've been learning. But I did go back and look at Rise, that big conference we're having in Orlando, October 1 through the 3rd. And uh, Al and I, Al's going to be there with me i believe you're going to present aren't you and so we would love to meet you there now i think originally we had said it's about fifteen hundred dollars but as i looked at it it's really more like a thousand i'm just going to break it down for you it's 325 for two and a half days of seminars and there's movie and lunch and a dinner and uh, it won't be any more than 325 and then the hotel rooms are 139 a night and then airfare, however much, two, three, 500 to get to Orlando. And so um, I thought, well, that's a, about a thousand. I know that's still a lot, but I think it's going to be an amazing conference. And you will meet a lot of like-minded uh, moms and moms and dads, because I know many men that are coming and so it might be kind of a fun add a day before or a day after to and go to Disney World or something. But anyways, I we would love to meet you there at Mom Rise, and we are having um, uh, September 18th a Mom Summit from one to four in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think Madison. Hawthorne Hawthorne one of the youngest members of Congress will be speaking Kimberly Fletcher the president of Moms for America will be speaking we also have a mom summit in Leesburg Virginia on September 20th and i believe that will be in the evening from 6 to 9 some wonderful speakers in and, and probably you and i will be there cuz that's just about an hour from our house so anyways lots going on we have a brand new website so please go to our website it's beautiful we're just over the moon. Cause we've been, you know, moms, we've always been operating on a few nickels and now we have a little bit of money and our website is so helpful and wonderful. And so uh, take a look there. Okay. So we have, uh, we've gone through seminar one, which talked about and reminded us that look, God is, is a God of miracles. Uh, back then in the formation of our nation and he's certainly a god of miracles today i hope that you know gave you great hope to be reminded of that even though things might look a little bleak in our nation right now seminar two we learned the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and what came before or, or what came after our founders and some of those uninspired amendments look our founders wanted our constitution to be our greatest export, to be a model to the world. And that is certainly what it has done with these ideas of limited government and free market and checks and balances and separation of power and and the voice of the people being preeminent. And, and we saw those principles work so beautifully within the first 100 years working under our constitution you know, we had 6% of the world's population, but we're producing 50% of the world's wealth. And then something began to happen in the last 100 years as we began to deviate from these principles and there were um, concerted attacks on our Constitution and on our founding fathers and on these beautiful principles of of the Republic. And that's what we're learning in Seminar 3, the attacks on our education, the attacks on the moral fiber. And today we're actually going to talk about the attacks on the Constitution. So remember, we don't study these attacks to, to discourage us. We don't want to lose hope, but we have to know how something got broke in order for us to know how to fix it and how to heal it. And hang on because seminar four is about the healing of America. And so this seminar wasn't meant to drive us to the closet with ice cream. Although we both have been eating a lot of ice cream the last few weeks, Mm -hmm. but we need to understand that we are in a war for the hearts of our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors in this nation. And we don't need to take counsel from our fears. Look, God has told us in the Bible in 1 Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So I always say fresh courage take, mamas and dads. Uh, You know, our God is a mighty God, and we know that he will prevail. And as long as we stay on his side, we will prevail as well as we stay anchored in hope. So we need to be continued to be that light and beacon to those around us. And we do that by staying linked into God by looking to him for our deliverance and our solutions and keeping that family close and continuing to learn. And this is why we gather together each week on our online cottage meetings. So we can learn these principles and write them on our hearts. So when the hour of need rises, that we can rise up and we will have the words and the truth and the principles written indelibly on our hearts and in our minds. And we'll be more of a powerful force and tool For good and for this country. And then lastly, you know, as we learn, that means inevitably we're gonna do something. Opportunities will come our way. Well, we will stand up, well, we will push back, well, we will speak up. And uh, we did something last week, we had almost 25 moms join us for a cottage meeting training last week, 25 moms (laughs) wanna start cottage meetings around the country. I mean, every single day Viv and I are getting emails now, moms from all around the country, wanting to know how to start these cottage meetings and and what they can do so I say come to these training sessions even if you don't feel like you're ready to start a little study group in your neighborhood sometimes I think if we're just willing to get on that wall and say okay Lord here I am here am I I don't really know what I'm going to do on this wall I don't feel like picking up a club and swing it around but I'm here I'm standing where you want me to stand it will be amazing how he might open our hearts and give us the courage to do some of these things that we might not feel like we're prepared or qualified to be able to do yet. And and, and so I do know that as mamas and and families come and meet and learn these things that they're having shifts and they're starting to make some changes in their life. Just uh, two weeks ago when we are in Utah, you had a speaking assignment and a mom came up to me and she said, I've been watching you and your husband online. And Uh, I was inspired, I started a family devotional in my home. And so, you know, whether it's starting a cottage meeting, or starting a family devotional, or showing up at a, a school board meeting, or even testifying at a school board meeting as you get this knowledge in you as you get these principles and this truth in you you will feel more compelled to speak up and you will have the confidence to do so and recognize when the opportunities come your way so let's turn now to our seminar number three the tax on the charter freedom i know you can never really see that too well section three There are 18 pages in section three today. It's going to be impossible for Al and I to go through these 18 pages. So I'm going to kind of give you an overview and Al will teach probably a little bit more meat. But remember, Mm -hmm. if you will go through and, and reread these 18 pages in the next 48 hours, it will kind of help lock in what we've gone over. Um, tonight. And just know, take notes and you are going to have to go through these Healing of America seminars a few times to really have this material sink in. Okay, Okay. so so here... (laughs) Here we go. Last week we talked about, the last two weeks, John Dewey and Horace Mann, these godless educational reformers that are really held in very high esteem and regard in educational circles and universities to this day. And what did they know? If they could diminish the influence of mother and God in the child's life, they could control them. So they made the school day longer and they got rid of the one house schoolroom, and they broke it up into elementary, middle school, high school, uh, separating the family, making peer pressure more more, uh, important to a child than the family and putting in, in their minds this idea that your parents are really outdated. There's definitely a generational gap. And so, and then with the launch of the Russian satellite in 1957, we, during the height of the Cold War, we were afraid we were uh, falling behind in the world. And so we allowed the government to get more involved in education, more math, more science, more advanced curriculum, less constitution, less God, less founding fathers. Now, remember, our founding fathers knew that we behave the way we've been taught, the way we believed. And so they knew it was imperative in order to maintain this republic based on natural law, God's law, that they needed to teach children not only knowledge, But religion and morality, if they were going to maintain this government based on God's law, people were going to remain virtuous and morally strong and, and be able to be in a position to govern themselves. Because they knew as people became less righteous, they leaned more towards kingly government. They had more need of masters. And so uh, we saw this anti-God, anti-American sentiment coming into our country in the early 1900s, and the Supreme Court got on board in the middle 1900s, took God out of school, took prayer, took Bible reading out of the school, and what did we see? Do we see an increase in national scores? We've seen a steady decrease since we've taken God out. Al has always taught our children, you are so much smarter when you have God with you and when you have the spirit with you. And as we pulled these forces out of the schools, I don't think we could say our kids are getting smarter and doing better. So who in the world has been tampering with the soul of America? As we get started now in section three, some people are offended When they, you and me, are identified as those who are guilty of propelling us along in the course that we are. If you want to find the devil who is responsible for our becoming more of a socialistic nation, go home and look in the mirror. We all are. All of us are responsible. If Washington, D.C., has been making us more socialistic, it's because we as citizens have been asking Washington, D.C., D. to do that. All you have to think of is in the last year and a half how we, you know, people have been so accepting and receiving of this, uh, all the stimulus checks that have been coming forth. And uh, yesterday and today in the Washington Post, you know, $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill uh, passed. this Senate probably will pass the House 2,700 pages of spending. And I don't think it's just on roads. And then today, $3.5 trillion budget. So people are just expecting the government to take care of them and, and to uh, to provide in ways that their founders never intended. In fact, I have a sister who, who gets the, she said, Jalene, I get $500 a month for two children until December, it's some kind of part of a COVID relief for families. And she said, what in the world is this about? I didn't ask for this uh, and i I don't I'm not sure she even needs it. But this is what the government is doing, and we're, and we're receiving it. Nearly everyone is responsible, including multinational corporations, big banks, the Federal Reserve, farm lobbies, big labor, National Education Association, big cities, little cities. We're all trying to get something which the Constitution and the free market system strictly forbade. There's been a gradual replacing of people's law where all power is in the people to rulers law with whoever controls the money rules and this has been going on this slide for the last hundred years and it started with five things the 16th amendment where the federal government remember we've talked about the 16th amendment can now directly go into a person's home and begin to tax them where whereas before the 16th amendment the states were responsible for how they were going to come up with their part of the federal budget so the states were the ones to determine how they were going to tax the people with the 16th amendment we now uh, gave the federal government the authority to come in and directly tax us so now the federal government grew and grew and got fatter with all the money that they were taking in from these individual taxes and certainly it was a graduated scale as well our founders wanted a fair and uniform tax in the um first article, but the 16th Amendment uh, taxed you more based on the income. So if you made more, you were taxed more, which certainly wasn't fair and uniform as, as our founders had intended. Then we have the 17th Amendment, which took Um, The senators being that watchdog on the states and going home each week and asking the state legislature how they should vote. You know, does our state really want to pay for this new program? Does it infringe upon the rights of our state? They don't do that anymore. Now the senators act like, you know, the wing of compassion, the House members. They're just beholden to, uh, you know, uh, special interest in unions to pay their 16 million dollar reelection campaign Fund every six years, and so no one is no one is on that watchdog for the states anymore. And then we saw um, private bankers getting control of our money with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. There is nothing federal about the Federal Reserve, and there's certainly no reserve to the Federal Reserve. And Al is going to talk about that in uh, a little bit in his in his part. <laughs> and then and then we saw this this gradual welfare state. You know, once we started getting all this money from the Sixteenth Amendment, now the government started getting its hands and everything and 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 applying all this money to specific welfare. Remember the general welfare clause in the preamble was just meant to make sure the federal government made sure there was peace in the land, that all was well in the land. We started now to apply that general welfare clause to mean specific welfare with all these special programs that we were giving people and and, and entities and so forth. And then we also saw in the 1900s, the United States getting involved in foreign wars that centralized uh, power in the executive branch permanently. So um, it's obvious from observation that the majority of the problems that we face in America have come about from abandoning the the founders' charter of freedom, the Constitution, and the principles of this government that it that they advocated for. So let's just take a peek in, over the last hundred years why this has come to be. There has been attacks on just the relevance of the Constitution in general, section one. The founders expected the Constitution to last forever because they felt that they had discovered and restored eternal natural law. Remember Thomas Jefferson felt that these laws would be eternal, he said. And James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, he said, We accomplished a revolution that had no perils in the annals of human society. There had never been a model on the face of the globe for what they did. Now, certainly there had been republics in history. Plato talks about republics. Some of the great thinkers, you know, the the Republic of Rome and and modern times, there's even the People's Republic of China. You know, that republic looks a little different from our republic or the Leninist Marxist uh, a socialist republic, but the kind of republic they gave us with these three branches of power, three branches of government and separation of powers and checks and balances amongst the, the branches with these free markets and limited government and the voice of the people governing had never existed. And our founders expected us to be able to Um, improve upon and perpetuate what they gave us. And they said that the Constitution lasting would depend on two things, interpreting it exactly how it had been written from their original intentions, and also making it hard to be able to change it. Now, the fifth article allows us to amend the Constitution Two-thirds, remember, of the House and Senate, and then three-fourths of all of the state's legislatures have to approve it. It's hard to amend the Constitution, and they wanted it deliberately to be hard. George Washington said, be very careful about a usurpation of power when you go to change it. For an instance, it might seem to be an instrument of good to change uh, this uh, Constitution, but that is usually the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed when you begin to tinker with their founding documents. So what would um, George Washington consider a usurpation of um, power, a usurpation uh, um, of the constitution? I would think executive orders. Can you see uh, how a president, when he puts forth executive orders, he just goes around the legislative branch to enact laws. Or even these federal mandates, you know, uh, closing closing down uh, all the federal buildings, or requiring vaccine passports or masks everywhere. And 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 then when the you know when President Biden now, our little daughter said, "Mom, I went and bought some tickets at the Kennedy Center, which is actually a federal building," and she said, "In order for me to go see the show Hadestown, Town, me and my husband, I either have to show my vaccine passport." Or uh, I have to show a COVID test, and so can you see as as the president has set the standard for federal buildings, how mayors and governors all around the country are taking his cues and doing the same thing, and um, even these regulatory agency laws that were intended just to um, you know for the president to be able to administer in the executive branch, these regulatory agencies, five five hundred of them are making laws that are, are, you know, dictating that all citizens are, are beholden to these regulatory administrative agencies. And then of course, all the courts that are starting to legislate judicially from the bench. So this would be considered examples of a usurpation of the constitutional power that George Washington warned us of. So by the closing of the 19th century, there was going to uh, to begin a massive attack on the relevance of the constitution and the separation of powers. And and in the early 1900s, scholars and political philosophers, including Woodrow Wilson, who was the president of Princeton, uh, you know, began to be critical of, of some of these constitutional bedrock principles. And wouldn't you know, Woodrow Wilson would go on to become the 28th president. And wouldn't you know, under him, we would get the 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, the Federal Reserve would be founded under his presidency. So we get members of Congress during this time period too that are speaking out uh, negatively about the Constitution. Look, Senator Clark from Pennsylvania here says, I have no hesitation in stating my deep conviction that the legislatures of America, local, state, and national are presently the greatest menace to the successful operation of this democratic process. The executive should be strengthened at the expense of the legislature. Uh, late legislature. Jefferson was wrong. The government is not best which governs least. And then Senator Fulbright from Arkansas, who came a couple decades after Woodrow Wilson, but was an admirer of President Wilson, said the president is hobbled in his task of leading the American people um, by this constitutional system that was designed for the 18th century ag- agrarian society, far removed from the centers of power today. You know, that Senator Fulbright, he's the one that started the um, Fulbright Scholars Program. And now I don't think I think very highly of this man that started that program. And he would go on to say, break out of the intellectual confines of that cherished and traditional beliefs and open our minds to the possibility that basic changes in our system must be essential to to keep up with the 20th century. And then we have President uh, Theodore Roosevelt who would go on to become a progressive he was the president uh 1901 to 1909 and he uh definitely didn't believe in limited government in fact he said uh he was entitled to do anything except what the Constitution specifically said he could not do. Now, that is the absolute opposite of what the founders intended. They wanted limited and carefully defined powers to the federal government. And if the Constitution was silent on something, then they wanted that to be term- to go back to the states and for the states and the people in the states to determine these things. So President Roosevelt uh, was definitely off on that. And, and under his presidency, we began this period of expansionism. He's the one who started to build the Panama Canal and get involved with Cuba, and Philippines, and Guam, and Hawaii, and, and uh, begin to obtain some of these new territories. So this idea of a president, a powerful president began to become very popular in the early 1900s. And uh, we can see that the constitution was going to be twisted and to, distorted to mean whatever the political leaders felt that it would mean. And even the Supreme court justice, Charles uh, Evans Hughes in 1907 said, "Um, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is actually uh, what we say it is because we're the judges, but the constitution is what the judge says it is. So instead of our Supreme court being the guardian of the law, they were now going to begin to make new law based on not the rule of law, but their own personal whim. And then we have Justice Thurgood Marshall in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, attempting to justify rewriting the constitution. He And he criticized anyone who, you know, felt that they shouldn't interpret the constitution more, uh, you know, broadly. And he said, um, he said it, it reflects a refusal to accept a new concept of law to shake free of the 19th century moorings into view and to view the law as effective instruments of social policy. I'm not sure if I read that that made a lot of sense, but go back and, and read that because it's a little shocking because basically what he's saying is that they felt this document was is, was irrelevant to our time and that they were now going to start to base their opinions uh, that their rulings on their opinions instead of the rule of law which is completely contrary to principle 22 in the 5000 year leap that says a free people should be governed by the rule of law not by the whims of men what the popular consensus is is, is what they're saying and so then you have president kennedy in 1962 in a in a speech that he gave saying there is some feeling that I know by many good Americans that the Constitution, which Gladstone called the most notable work ever struck off by the mind of men, gives us an automatic light to the future. It guides clear our way and that all we have to do is follow its very clear uh, uh, precepts. But after all, the Constitution was written for an entirely different period in our nation's history and it was written under entirely different conditions. So in other words what he was saying is the constitution just doesn't fit the conditions of our day. And we knew we know that that's not true. Our founding fathers said that they wrote this constitution and they knew that it would apply through the ages because human nature doesn't change, mm-hmm. and we learned in seminar one. John John Adams said that it was written to govern three million, but it would it could govern up to three hundred million, and and that's about the population of our country today, three hundred twenty million. And so anyways, so you see these attacks on just the relevance, oh, it's outdated, it doesn't apply to our, our day anymore. So Al is going to take over the attacks now that we're coming mm-hmm. on the boundaries.
1: Okay, I think the one question you might want to ask someone, if they tell you that the Constitution is obsolete or outdated, ask them which part are they referring to? based on what we know we can we can pretty much counter what anybody says but i would guarantee you 99.9 percent of them would not be able to tell you that so now we've come to section two which is attacking the founders the founders as we have discussed particularly from seminar one they pledge their lives their fortunes and sacred honor little did they know at the time their honor would be under attack and those who would conduct this assault would do it through the education system so if you can't attack the doctrine which is the constitution then you go after the personalities because if you can smear them turning them into slave owning degenerates and hypocrites you can then discredit the document that they created so we've heard about the stories of thomas jefferson and sally Hemings. julian and i have been down to monticello a couple of times and We try not to be obnoxious, but usually they tell that story once we get to Jefferson's bedroom. And invariably I'll raise my hand and ask the question. And basically what I will point out is, are you sure about that story? Because you've got two books in your library and books that I've read that call that the question. And then you should see the people's look on their faces because they're like, here's this black man who's actually countering what we're being taught and then afterwards we would speak with the the individual who made the statement and they said hey whether we believe it or not it doesn't matter because the foundation encourages us or actually instructs us to tell that story at that point in the program it's almost as if they want you to leave Monticello confused about who Thomas Jefferson is And then we also know what's happened to Ben Franklin who was known during his time as the father of morality or the golden patriot so the best way to transmit misinformation is through the educational system as you attempt to shape the minds of children so what we do in our homes to fill the gaps and teach these stories and principles is more important now more than ever it's so critical that we arm our kids with these stories and teach them these principles and they will invariably, when they become, when hard times come in their lives, they'll be able to go back and lean on those stories of individuals who faced far greater obstacles than they did. And they will draw encouragement from that and say, you know what, I can do it too. So the question is, how did this come to be? How was the educational system compromised? Well, much of it came from private foundations. These are the same foundations that were formed by Rockefeller, Morgan, Rothschild, Carnegie, all these names should be familiar to us. They were set up prior to the passage of the 16th Amendment which was done in 1913. And these foundations were set up to avoid paying taxes. So we've come to 1952 And the 82nd Congress at that time passed House Resolution number 561 to set up a special select committee to investigate foundations and comparable organizations. So in July of 1953, Congress formed a second committee by Congressman Reese, so it's called the Reese Committee. And I'm gonna read you their their premise. The committee is authorized and directed to conduct a full and complete investigation to determine which of such foundations and organizations are using their resources for un-American and subversive
0: (laughs) subversive
1: activities, which is very interesting. So the chief investigator conducted the research and found that these foundations were formed by Rockefeller, Rothschild, J.P. Morgan, and Carnegie, and so forth, and and he was instructed, once they found out this information, the Congress, of course, opened up a can of worms and did not want this information to become public, so they sat on it, and they instructed the chief investigator at the time to destroy his copies of the report but he kept the originals and he actually sent the originals in 1977 1978 to Dr. Cleon Skousen and Dr. Glenn Kimber who were the authors of these Healing of America seminars that we're going through and it's actually found in their book I'm going to let you hold that up yeah. Tax Exempt Foundations
0: The Reese report is and and you can get this book it's fascinating uh through kimbercurriculum.org i think it's 12 dollars or something but that reese report which is very hard to find online it's all right here
1: right and so what we find when we go through that book is that one more than one billion dollars was spent on the attack on the founding fathers because if you can't attack the doctrine then you have to go after the personality so you have to change who they were Okay, number three, destroying. So the two main reasons that these, before we get to that, the two main reasons that these foundations became an enemy to the Constitution. Number one, it was infiltrated. They were infiltrated by people sympathetic to socialism and communism as they fell trap to the messages and doctrine of both Horace Mann and John Dewey. And we remember John Dewey, Columbia's Teachers College. That's where the majority of our teachers came from. Another thing was quick action by men who were used to snapping their fingers to get things done. These were men who ran companies, they were executive. They thought that the US system devised by the founders was archaic, super slow, and too deliberative. They also wanted to crush their competition. And we'll talk about that because one prime example of that is the creation of the Federal Reserve. And what happens is when you have a bigger, more centralized government, that means you can concentrate your influence in that one area as opposed to going state by state. And they wanted a strong executive, stronger than both the Congress and the judiciary so they can make quick decisions. So a strong centralized government, the results are what we're seeing today. It puts power in the hands of a few, who like they're the elites, who like to direct everyone below them. They don't want any authority above them, but they want to direct everything below them. It's also a disincentive for volunteerism and philanthropy. Most people just say to themselves, let the government do it. Thirdly, it creates apathy. And we can see that in our own school system where we send our kids off to school and we assume everything is okay. and We also feel like we're powerlessness. We have, we don't have any power because everything is centralized. So we just had a friend of ours reach out to us today. The city council in Salt Lake City overturned the health commissioner of Salt Lake County mandate for masks for kids K through 12. And the city council had to overturn it. That actually should have never have been a decision that was taken from the parents to begin with. Each parent should decide whether their kids have to wear a mask to school or not. So that has destroyed the balance of power. And Julene touched on the 17th amendment. So article one, section three of the constitution says, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature. thereof for a six year term. So, the founders had assigned the Senate the responsibility of representing the states as sovereign entities, and they were to be appointed by the state legislatures. And that's significant for, for us as individuals because oftentimes we see our state legislator at the grocery store or at the Walmart. So, we have direct influence. They're in our neighborhoods, we can go to the state capitol. and and take our grievances and petitions to them. So the founders wanted the legislatures to pick the senators because they didn't want the senators to, to involve themselves in popular issues of the day so they could concentrate primarily on the protection of states' rights. The states were to be the vertical check on protecting the people from a runaway federal government. The House, as we've discussed, is elected every two years, and they're problem solvers. The Senate is supposed to ask two questions on bills coming out of the House. Number one, can we afford it? Because the states were paying the bills, as Julian highlighted. And number two, does it have an impact on freedom or the liberties of the people? If you think about it, practically, the IRS, OSHA, or any government agency can come into your home or place of business and disrupt your life. And there's nothing, anyone in the state legislature, the Senate, or the governor that can do anything about it. So what happened was, we saw a big change come about in the Civil War. When the idea of the states as sovereign political entities changed and the forces of war induced the people to to abandon their local loyalties and prerogatives in favor of a strong central government. So we started to see this come about in the civil war. Time of emergency is when it's time to change things. And so we see that corruption also began, scandals began around reconstruction after the civil war where big businesses began to bribe their way to these Senate appointments, thereby undoingly, un, unduly influencing some of the state legislatures. So instead of relying on the people of the states to root out this corruption, a movement began to pass the 17th Amendment, thereby making each senator subject to the popular vote of the people. And it's interesting to note that the House had previously tried to pass the 17th Amendment. Actually, they did pass it from the House in 1893, 1894, 1898, 1900, and 1902. And what we found was the momentum among the states were building to pass the 17th Amendment. And all that pressure was placed on the Senate because at each time, those years that i just highlighted the senate rebuffed the house but they finally gave in in 1913. 1913 is when they gave in and the congress did it so there was no need for a convention of the states so when you had an erosion of constitutional principles it soon resulted in the bake the break the breakdown i'm sorry of the government machinery And so what happened was all of these problem-solving bills that were passed by the House soon overwhelmed the Senate. And because the Senate is now voted on by the people, quick action, we've got to pass these bills, which also meant that they didn't read the bills because they had to move quickly on them. And so a credibility gap began developing between Congress and the people as they saw billions of dollars began to be spent for specific welfare instead of general welfare. So how do you stay in office? If you're in the Senate or the House, you take from the haves and you give to the have nots. And then you've got the influence of lobbyists. Now, when this was written, there are 15,000 registered lobbyists in Washington, DC. I think there's a few more than that now. They often have greater influence on the people, on the, on the senators than the people back home. And I saw that firsthand as a lobbyist in the defense and aerospace industry. I worked for a company called Boeing and we had a large footprint in Missouri. So I could walk past constituents, go right into the Senator's office or the Congressman office. I knew actually Stover's chocolates are produced in Missouri. And so the Senator had a stash of Stover's chocolates and I knew exactly where they were. I would go right to his office if he didn't have an appointment because we were giving major political action committee money to him. And, and that opened the door for me to establish a relationship with him in the office. I can walk past his constituents, go in the office, get some chocolates, hang out, talk amongst the staff. And I had more influence than the people because What happens was because of the 17th amendment, you elect your Senator the first time, but then it's special interest that keeps them in office because they have to raise money to stay in office. And most of that money comes from outside of the state. So then you've got two houses operating the same, problem solvers, nobody's asking the questions about liberty or can we afford it? So then you've got major pieces of legislation are negotiated among a few people. We see that today. We see that today with this infrastructure bill and the the stimulus bills, the COVID bills. It's negotiated among the White House, the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Senate Minority Leader. So they bypass the deliberative committee process, which the founders put in place because they wanted just like in the constitutional convention they wanted general consensus general agreement they wanted them to talk things out so that everybody agreed there was no such thing during the founders time of bills passed by slim majorities that's why they wanted a slower more deliberative process and and really what it did was put a check on the congress so they wouldn't usurp the powers of the state Okay, section four, all power to the president. The original 10 of the founders limited the federal government to just 20 enumerated powers found in article one, section eight. James Madison pointed out the constitution was structured so that the powers delegated to the federal government are few. And the founders contemplated heavy responsibilities for the president, but limited him to just, or her to just six areas. Number one, chief of state over America, commander in chief of the military. Thirdly, the chief executive officer over the whole executive branch. Number four, the chief diplomat. Number five, the chief architect for needed federal legislation. And then he or she was to serve as the conscience of the nation granting pardons or reprieves when he or she felt justice required them. Six powers for the president. George Washington was inaugurated. There were only four cabinets. his the Attorney General, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of War, who else? Attorney General, Secretary of
0: the Treasury.
1: Secretary of War.
0: War. Oh, there's one more.
1: Come on, Julianne. <laughs> I forgot too. All right, we'll come back to that. But that was it, it was just four. Yeah. yeah, John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, Henry Knox, and Alexander Hamilton. Treasury. Treasury, we said that.
0: Yeah, so we're missing. Oh, that.
1: Secretary of State, Thomas, oh, yeah, Jefferson, Thomas Secretary Jefferson, Secretary of State,
0: Secretary of State. And now we have 15 cabinet members. We have 15 members.
1: cabinet members, and then we've got the US Trade Representative Office. So now the president is responsible for full employment of the workforce. He's got agriculture, housing, labor welfare i remember in the, being in the state senate and we were talking about the best way to administer some welfare for a particular issue that we were dealing with and and i was told senator jackson that's a great idea unfortunately our hands are tied because we get money from the federal government and they direct how we spend this money and what rules we have to follow i mean just completely counterintuitive that we have to 2,500 miles away a bureaucracy is telling us how to take care of our own poor and needy. It's absolutely ridiculous. The president's also the of national social security program. All of this is incredibly expensive. Healthcare, education, regulating all the major U.S. industries such as steel, automobile, manufacturing, airlines, administering billions of dollars in foreign aid. Just the president is basically king. The sick passage of the 16th and 17th amendment have opened the door, made all this possible. The 16th, of money, 16th amendment gives you the money and the 17th amendment operates. The senators operate just as the house bring home the bacon to stay in office. So we can see how things have been just, just unraveled that have opened the door and have taken power from we the people and put it in Washington, D.C. Okay, Julian, I'm gonna have you go over the Supreme Court and then i want to go through, if that's okay with you. Sure, the, I give out related, the hard
0: parts at related night, too. I, I want to talk.
1: I wanna talk about Jack O'Liata. <laughs> All right, so hurry up, hurry up.
0: Okay, I'll be quick. So there was going to be an assault also on the Founders' intent for the Supreme Court. So really in the early years, In many respects, the justices of the Supreme Court restrained themselves for many generations, but eventually the temptation to begin to substitute their own wisdom for that of the founders began to manifest itself. And and so hence, in the last hundred years, we've seen that as the Supreme Court has usurped authority over the many different cases coming up through the states on the grounds of the 14th Amendment. Remember that 14th Amendment was just supposed to secure former slaves, uh, all the citizen rights of any other citizen in the country with equal protection of the laws. And what the Supreme Court began to do is use that equal protection clause to actually punish uh, the states and, and to make all the original Bill of Rights applicable, not only to chaining down you know chain them down uh the federal government but chain the states down and punish the states and that
1: also opened the door so all these cases that were supposed to be done at the state level yeah. because of the 14th amendment were pulled up to the federal courts that's why it takes when somebody gets convicted of something it takes what a year or two to even get yeah. there's no right to a speedy trial is
0: gone because the federal courts are so uh, bogged down and, and that equal protection Misapplication of that of the Fourteenth Amendment has been the grounds uh, for the courts to sweep in and tell the states what to do. This is that was the grounds on which uh, same-sex marriage was legalized in 2013, and and we also see the federal courts now getting involved in ministering the affairs of schools and prisons and welfare programs. I mean, now we have the the courts determining that football coaches can't say prayers. Uh, you know, at the 50-yard line after the games, because that's an establishment of religion. And they're also, the courts are getting involved in extensive social um, conditions of the day. And hence, they ruled on abortion and same-sex marriage. And we're going to begin to see cases dealing with transgenderism probably in in the very near future. So, you know, in order to really appreciate how far we strayed, Uh, from what our founders intended when it comes to the Supreme Court, a constitutional authority by the name of Corwin kind of broke it down into four periods of the courts. The first period, the first 50 years after the formation of our country, we saw that the justices really did closely stick to the Constitution as their um, interpretation and guide uh, for you know, court cases. And then the second period was about 1835 to 95. And the courts leaned heavily on various doctrines of constitutional theory, but they began to not quote the founders quite as much, although they were still pretty strict in adhering to the philosophies uh, of the founders. And then from 1895 until the 1900s, this third phase, we begin to see the court's replacing constitutional supremacy with judicial supremacy. So no longer uh, was the constitution what the founders said it was, but what the Supreme court thought it meant, you know, we're the judges, we tell you what the constitution means. And then finally, this last period, which continues on to today where it says our courts are just almost spectacle out of control and it's very much in need of repair. So, you know, there, our early founding fathers were concerned as well with that judicial branch of the government that they didn't put enough checks and balances. Look, we have a check and balance. The president can veto legislation from the legislative branch, or the legislature can override a president's veto, two thirds of Congress. But there's no way to check and balance, you know, uh, an errant judicial decision that, you know, the country or the states don't agree with. So when we talk about healing the Constitution in seminar four, we'll actually talk about what a possible judicial restraint amendment might look like. Imagine if two thirds of Congress could overturn a decision from the Supreme Court, how that would- Or
1: three fourths of the states.
0: Yeah, and and how that might put justices uh, on notice, so to speak. And so uh, the founders anticipated that there was a very strong possibility that the branches of the federal government would warp their channels of authority. And Alexander Hamilton urged, future generations, it's like he's talking to us because he might have known that human nature, you know, always wants more power than they're entitled to. He said, if the federal government should overpass the just bounds of its authorities and make a tyrannical use of its powers, the people whose creature it is must appeal to the standard that they have formed, which is the constitution, and take such measures to redress. He means to remedy it, to repair it redress the injury to the constitution as as may suggestion prudence justifies. so he's saying here look people there might be a a time where you're no, gonna I have to, to rise word. up exigency. <laughs> <laughs> I just skip over words and I, I don't feel like saying because they sound like they're too much work. So Hamilton is almost like he was prophesying or foreseeing that there was going to be a time where that people, that creatures, did he call us creatures, we're gonna have to rise up and reinstate what our founders gave us. And we know 85% of the Constitution is intact about 15% has been is a little bit in disrepair. So it is a flick, it's fixable and Hamilton is haunting us from our graves saying you got to rise up people and fix this.
1: All right. So number 6, the monetary system in shambles. It, it's actually I would change that the monetary system is jacked up completely contrary to what the founders gave us. So Article 1 Section 8 Clause 5 states the Congress shall have the power to coin money regulate the value thereof and a foreign coin and fix the standards of weights and measures. So to coin money meant that the United States must always be on a gold and silver standard. Money has to be backed by silver and gold. Congress was given the power to coin money, not to print it. To coin money is to stamp pieces of metal for use as a medium of exchange and commerce according to fixed standards of value and these standards are based on natural supply and demand what was prohibited was to print what we call fiat money which is money that's not backed by gold and silver and the constitution clearly prohibits the states from issuing fiat money because they knew from personal experience before and during the Revolutionary War that you can't print money that's not backed by gold and silver, by gold and silver. And so what happened was in order to change all that, we had to create the Federal Reserve. There's a really cool book. It's actually quite thick, but I actually got it and read it. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. So let me tell you about Jekyll Island. It's in Georgia. And there was a meeting there in 1910. Six men attended this meeting who represented one fourth of the total wealth of the entire world. Six men, one fourth of the wealth. So the competitive landscape relating to the banking industry was changing, thereby threatening this powerful cartel. We're gonna call them a cartel. And the names that were represented at this meeting were Rockefeller, Morgan, and Rothschild. Also in attendance at this meeting was a sitting United States Senator and the Assistant Secretary of the United States Treasury. So let's let's frame the meeting. So by, by 1910, The number of banks in the US were growing at a phenomenal rate. There were 20,000 new banks that were created in a 10 year period. So what do you think the banks in New York, the big banks were thinking at this time as their market share was declining? So they were losing money to these small mom and pop banks that were popping up all over the country. We actually saw one bank, where's that bank in that, that stupid movie we watch every Christmas?
0: Oh, George?
1: Yeah, George. What bank is that? Where is that? T- what's, oh. what's the name of that movie? <laughs>
0: it's a Wonderful it's Life. It's a Wonderful
1: Life, right. So that's one of those banks. All right, okay. Yeah. So between 1900, so here's another phenomenon. So between 1900 and 1910, 70% of the funding for American corporate growth was being generated internally, meaning companies were financing their own growth, their own projects, from internal profits as opposed to getting loans from banks even the federal government at this time was becoming more thrifty growing their stockpile of gold remember money was backed by gold thereby reducing the national debt so these bankers however these six people wanted to intervene in the free market to tip the balance of interest rates downward to favor debt over thrift, is that's how they make their money, through the interest rates. They don't want you to pay off the principal, they want you to pay the interest rates. The greatest threat came from what the bankers call a run on the bank, and that happened in A Wonderful Life. So a person deposit his or her money at the bank, and the bank promises to pay back the deposit any time he or she wants their money. The problem is the bank wants to loan out that money to others seeking to borrow. So oftentimes, particularly if the bank was sloppy, that money may or, not, may, may or may not be there when the person who deposited wants the money. So then we've got, and there's fear created, so then you create a run on the bank. And this led to financial crisis in 1873, 1884, 1893 and 1907. So the meeting in Jekyll Island was called to do the the following. How do we maximize our profits by minimizing competition? How do we make it difficult for new competitors to enter the field? How do we make the money supply more elastic in order to reverse this trend of private capital formation to force more loans? So we want to lower the interest rates to entice booms, borrowing of money. And then we're gonna raise those interest rates to create busts, then we're gonna go and take everything. Then we wanna talk about, well, how do we pool the meager resources of the nation's bank into one larger reserve so that all banks would be motivated to follow the same loan to deposits ration. This would protect them from currency drains and bank runs. And should this lead to an eventual collapse of the whole banking system, guess what? We can now shift those losses from the owners of the banks to the taxpayers. And then how do we utilize the police power of the government to enforce the cartel agreement by convincing Congress this this, this scheme would protect the public? So the bottom line is the Congress and the banking cartel, through the Federal Reserve, enter into a partnership in which the cartel has the privilege of collecting interest on money, which it creates out of nothing. There's no gold or silver backing. So they're making money, they're printing money, loaning it to the Congress, and that's how they make their money on the interest rates. And then the Congress now has access to unlimited funding without having to tell the voters their taxes have been raised through the process of inflation. So there's nothing federal or reserve about the Federal Reserve Bank. It's a private consortium, it's a cartel, it's a scheme. Okay, so 16th amendment, we've already talked about that. We don't need to talk about that anymore. They're allowed it for the Congress to go to bypass the states and go directly into your pockets. The states in Section 7 have given up their ability to be checks in the balance of power. And one of the things that happened in 1936 was the Butler case. And this came about about the same time as the New Deal. And this is where The Supreme Court said that the Congress could tax and spend money for any good cause so long as the Congress considered it to be for the general welfare. So there's no constraints on the Congress to spend money and that was built on the passage of the 16th amendment and the 17th amendment and we have the crisis of the depression, we've got Franklin Delano Roosevelt who comes along and The general welfare clause is changed. Let's see here. So we've got 31, 32 plus trillion dollars in debt. Both congressmen in the house and senators began campaigning on the basis that they could bring home more federal money to their respective States. It also destroyed as Julian highlighted the equal protection of individual rights. This graduated income tax scheme that the government has come up with is really a violation of the fourth amendment which is equal so because the founders wanted everybody to be treated the same and as prince president lyndon johnson said the idea was to take from the haves and give to the have-nots and all of this is really based on socialism and we call today democratic socialism where The government operates in a socialistic way at the consent of the people. Like Julene said at the beginning, we have abdicated our authority. We've become less knowledgeable about the constitution. So we are getting what we deserve today. But we're gonna change all that because we're gonna continue to educate each other and we're going to run for office. We're gonna hold our legislators accountable one of the things that also happened, and I'm gonna to touch on before I turn the time back to Julene is the misinterpretation of the interstate commerce clause. In the beginning, the whole thrust was to ensure the free flow of commerce among the states. That was what the Congress was supposed to enforce. And that the power delegated to the states, to the national government was intended to limit to the regulation of transportation. How do we move goods between states? But now the government has gotten involved in interstate, intrastate commerce through further regulations and greater taxation. Okay, Jelene, over to you. I'm
0: finished. Yeah, and no, Obamacare would be an example of that when they went. He went in and mandated healthcare businesses, and actually that was overturned and uh, by the Supreme Court. As a distortion and abuse of that provision to mandate companies do what um, Obamacare did. And um, and once <laughs> again, even the way the government is influencing these vaccines and mass mandates, which are influencing governors and mayors to come in and dictate businesses, you know, that you can't have people in your uh Business, unless they have a mask or a vaccine passport, is definitely a violation and a distortion distortion of that commerce clause that it was supposed to be oversight amongst the different states, not to actually go within and tell these you know states and businesses how to run you know their commerce. And so you did a really good job explaining the Federal Reserve. I did. Yeah, that oh, was ri- riveting, Al. Thank you. And um, I could tell I. I you know this I actually read that thing this is kind of like a heavy read so this is probably not a book that i would read but guess what there's a child version of this book and it's by the tuttle twins and i don't have the it's called the creature from Jekyll island And it's the Tuttle Twins. And you can go on our store for Moms for America. And I think there's 13 of these books now by Connor Boyack. They're so good. The illustrations are so good. And they just break down like this is um, the miraculous pencil. I think it's the supply and demand of a free market economy. And he he teaches children what that means. So he's actually in his Tuttle Twin. He does the Jekyll. What is this? The creature from? Um, Jekyll Jekyll Island, but in a kids version on how the Federal Reserve was formed. So this is more my speed and this is Al's speed. This is why I'm, I'm so glad <laughs> I, mar- I married you, honey. You're so <laughs> smart. <laughs> but you know, you can see tonight that because of the basic knowledge of the constitutional principles that have been removed from our educational experience starting in the early 1900s, In our ignorance, we have abandoned the wisdom of our founding fathers. And a detailed study shows the major problems facing America today are are because we abandoned the founding fathers' basic principles of the Constitution in the United States. So I hope you're seeing that, you know, all these young people that are being educated in this system that doesn't teach the beauty of a free market or the republic anymore are becoming indoctrinated and they're coming home from school sounding like little mini Marxists. And there's a reason for it It was done by design. I mean, there's a reason why 65% of uh, voters in the age block of 18 to 24 voted, you know, for liberal candidates and came out in droves 11% more than any other age group uh, voted in the last election. It's because of what they're being taught and not being taught. And so, you know, you remove the influence of parents, you remove the influence of God from school, and you can begin to control and change them. You take prayer, you take Bible out of school, you instill this idea that your parents are outdated, they don't know what you're talking about, and you see what we see today. And we've allowed this federal government to grow Uh, you know with the 16th and 17th amendment and disruption of the separation of powers and checks and balances and now we just think it's normal to look to the government for a solution and for a handout and then the courts are you know pretending like they're lawmakers and legislating from the bench but look don't lose hope because, like I always say, if we don't know how it got broke, we don't can't appreciate how what it's going to take to heal it. So there are 18 pages, and we went through them like breakneck speed tonight. So please go back. And read every quote. There was a lot of good stuff that we just couldn't cover, but I think it will help fill in kind of the gaps and the questions that you might have. God didn't establish this first free society in modern times just to see it collapse into oblivion. And so we know prophecy tells us in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that he will heal our lands if we will turn to him and humble ourselves and uh, repent and turn from our wicked ways he will heal our land and by what we're doing by coming together and studying these principles and being prayerful about you know how we can learn these things and how we can apply these things and how we can defend these things it's these kind of actions that will justify the heavens to intervene and as we continue to look to the heavens and pray, I, I had a mama recently who took this um, seminar three said, Juliana, <laughs> I'm really discouraged after this seminar three and she said, I don't really know what I can do. But what I can do is I pray when I don't know what to do I pray. And I thought that's the most beautiful thing that we can do. And our children will see us praying and we'll see us praying over this country and praying over our president, praying over our leaders, praying over each other. And in turn, they will learn that when they're up against something that is insurmountable and hard, uh, we, we pray, we don't know where else to turn we pray. And, and uh, just two days ago, um, our little son, who's a basketball player, called Al. And he said, Dad, I just got off my knees because I'm going to go in now and have a meeting with the general manager of the team that he plays for. And he and even though Frank has a, an agent who has been helping to negotiate his next contract in the NBA, he felt at 23 he need to go in there and kind of advocate for himself. And he said, uh, dad, would you and mom please say a prayer for me? Because um, I'm just worried. I want to be able to say and represent myself. And when Al came and told me that, I thought maybe not all is lost mm-hmm. when our kids, you know, their first instinct is to turn to God when they've got to do something scary and hard and, and they're worried about. And sure enough, he came back and reported. So Al and I, we did pray. And I was just thrilled. I didn't even care what the com- how the conversation went. I was just thrilled my kid was praying before he, you know, was going to do something difficult. And that's exactly where we want our kids to be. And that's so that's where we need to be when we're like, how in the world are we going to ever turn this thing around? Well, you get on your knees and you pray. And you pray with those kids. You bring them close in and you pray. And then you're teaching them. You know, through small and simple things, through a prayer, this is how God does his work and brings about great things. And our Frankie went on to report as he went in and spoke with that general manager. Uh, They were all in Vegas for summer league. And so he was there. They were all there. And he said, Mom, he he actually said to Dad, he said uh, he answered all of my questions before I even had to ask them. And they were able to come to an agreement. And he felt good about his future there. And so, you know, don't discount even if you can't do anything, but just look to God and pray and teach your kids to do the same to go to him when you you need some answers and solutions and deliverance and some courage and then keep that family close. And then you keep learning. And as you learn, you teach them. And then God will put in your heart what you should do and help us to stay anchored in hope and be a part of solution as we move forward. So, okay, we've got one more class of problems. And, oh, it's going to be an interesting class next week. I really like the way you teach Seminar 3, Al. I like teaching it with you. It's going to be the tack on America's role in the world, how our founders intended for us to be a light on the hill. And we stopped looking like that in the 1900s as we got involved with entangling alliances and made all kinds of enemies around the world. So, and these master planners uh, really began to take hold and um, we'll talk about who they are and what these entities are that they control. All right, everyone, that's it. Oh my word.